Revelation 19, one of my uh, favorite synopsis for the chapter is that it's a tale of two feasts. A tale of two feasts. And it's very important because these feasts will happen later on in the future. In chapter 17 and 18, we started off by saying God is writing down history and he never uses a pencil because he makes no mistakes. And here in chapter 19 is no different. God's going to reveal to us two different feasts and they're very important because we make our reservations now. We choose now and today which feast we'll be a part of. And there's some of us who really enjoy food. Anybody here really enjoy food? Right? Good amount of us enjoy food. That's great. I enjoy food. I like food a lot. And uh, there's some foods that, some restaurants rather, that you need to put a reservation in a couple hours ahead of time, right? There are others that you got to put that reservation a few days before, weeks before. If you're going on a big trip, sometimes you put that reservation months in advance for that restaurant that you're looking forward to. Uh, in this season at the church, we've had a lot of weddings. And when you RSVP to a wedding, if you get invited to uh, afterwards, after the ceremony, the food and the fellowship, you're always faced with that difficult decision, right? What am I going to be in the mood for to eat for dinner three months from today? Chicken, beef, or fish, right? What am I going to want to want three months from now, right? And that's the whole idea here within chapter 19. We're going to have these two feasts, and they're very different because in one feast, we are the esteemed guests, and in the other feast, we are literally what's on the menu. Again, it's a tale of two feasts. It's, imagine if you would, it might be difficult for some of us, it might be a little bit too easy for others of us, but imagine picking a fight with someone. You've picked a fight with someone, you're outside, you're ready to throw down, and just as you're ready, they say, wait, 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 let me, to, let me just make two phone calls and then ask you a question, okay? Two phone calls and a question. All right, man, whatever, but you, I'm still going to let you have it afterwards. And then they call, they call their spouse, they say, hey, honey, can you get dinner ready? May I have another guest or not? I'm not sure if they're coming, but could you get dinner ready? You're perplexed, what in the world is going on? And they hang up, they call the next phone number, hey, 911. Yes, I'd like you to send the ambulance over. There's somebody here. What's your blood type? Right, here's their blood type. They're going to need a transfusion. They're going to be really hurt. And you can just come on your way. Here's the address, right? Then after those two phone calls, they ask you a question. Hey, do you want to go to dinner with me? Or do you want to go to a hospital, right? Imagine picking a fight with someone. I, I really look at chapter 19, and I think that's the question Jesus Christ asks each and every one of us. He asks all of humanity. Would you like to attend the feast with me, or would you like to spend the rest of eternity in hell? That, that's really the two questions that are out there. Let's read verse 1 through 7. It says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. 
And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. After these things, we saw in chapter 17 and 18 the destruction of Babylon. The tale of Babylon, right? The two heads of the system. First and foremost, it's false religion, which is basically any religion based on man's works, which that's what all religion is based on. It's mankind working their way up to God to be pleasing to God and in His sight. Working ourselves to be good enough, working ourselves towards nirvana, working ourselves up to a place where God would accept us. Versus our faith, which is not based on our works, but it's based on the work of God sending His Son to die for us and to take our place. That then we would be able to be brought to Him, not on our works, but on the work of Jesus Christ. The other head of this system is this world's commercial system. This world's love affair with money to the point that we abuse other human beings. We abuse their lives. We abuse their very souls in order to make more money. They've been judged. And now in chapter 19, we see God coming to put down his government and to have this incredible feast together. We see this great multitude, which is a gathering of all the different multitudes we've seen thus far in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, we saw the multitude of the saints that were saved during the great tribulation. In verse 9, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Another multitude cries out in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. It tells us they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You see, all of the believers in heaven will be rejoicing at the destruction of Babylon. Versus everyone on earth who's going to be weeping and mourning over the destruction of Babylon. We'll be up in heaven praising God. Those on earth will be weeping and mourning. It starts off by saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. This word, alleluia, can be translated into every single language. Those of you that ever wanted to speak French or wanted to speak Mandarin, you just walk into a French church or right, Chinese church and say, alleluia, and everybody will start talking to you too. This is a word that translates through all of mankind, not just on earthly language, but many Bible scholars believe that this is a heavenly word. That this is a word we'll be using up in heaven. It appears four times in the New Testament and they all happen here in Revelation 19. Nowhere else in the New Testament do you see this word. They appear in the Old Testament about 50 times. The vast majority of the time happening within the book of Psalms. We could turn to Psalm chapter 149. 
And there in Psalm 149, we have a song to sing that's very similar to Revelation 19. And this word Alleluia means praise the Lord. Praise ye Jah, which is one of the names of God. Some scholars believe it's short for Jehovah. It's speaking of he who is. It's us looking to God and experiencing God as a present help. Not just he who was and is and is to come, but he who is right here with us. Psalm 149 verse 4 through 9 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. What a word picture there, right? What a choir. They're singing and then they have a sword in their hand at the same time. Verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Alleluia, St. Augustine says, is the feeling and saying of it embodies all the blessedness of heaven. Being able to say God is present here with us. He is currently here helping us. Then they go on and continue in Revelation 19 to say salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. That is saying the salvation, the only salvation belongs to our God. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other thing that can save us in this life and in the life to come. The glory, the honor, that all glory and all honor truly belong to the Lord our God. And he shares his glory with no one else. And finally, the power, the only place of power, the only person that possesses power and can bestow it to others is the Lord our God. All salvation, all glory, all honor, and all power belong to our God and our God alone. Why? Verse 2 tells us, For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. I don't know if you've ever posed this question, or if maybe someone's ever asked you the question, If God is an all-powerful God, and if God is an all-loving God, how does he allow so much evil and injustice to happen? Have any of you ever asked that question or have had somebody ask you that question, right? A couple people's hands go up. And this reveals to us that one day Jesus will judge every action, every injustice, everything that has ever taken place on this planet One day, Jesus Christ will judge it, and he will execute perfect judgment. He will execute true and righteous judgments. And the frightening thing to many of us is that Jesus will not only judge our actions, but Jesus will judge our every word. Every word we've ever spoken, Jesus will judge. 
Every word we've ever spoken, every thought we've ever had, every intent within our heart, behind our actions, Jesus will judge. Those times when your spouse asks you something and you say, yes, honey. But then what's happening in here, right? Whole separate conversation is happening in here, right? Jesus will judge that. When your boss asks you to do something and you don't want to get fired, so you just say, yes, sir, right? But then there's something else happening inside. It's our actions, it's our words, it's our thoughts. The very intent of our heart will be judged by Jesus Christ. And again, what kind of a judge is Jesus? He is true and he is righteous. That word true speaks that he is genuine. He is a genuine judge. He's not imperfect. He's not defective. He cannot be bought. It doesn't depend on how he woke up that morning. Jesus is true. He's also righteous, which speaks to him observing both divine and human law. That Jesus will one day render to every single human being, past, present, and future, each what they are due. He will. He'll judge all of humanity. John 5 verse 30 says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus judges based upon the will of God as he is the servant. He is the doulos of God. John 3, 17 reveals to us when Jesus first came into this earth, he didn't come to judge or condemn this earth. In fact, he came to save it. He came to give us a way for salvation. John 3, verse 17 tells us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, in his first coming, Jesus has come to give us a way to be saved. Not to condemn, but to save. But two chapters afterwards in John 5 verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. All the role of judging in heaven will be given from God the Father to Jesus Christ, His Son. Jesus will judge all of humanity. God will give that power to Him. And again, this is a sobering thought. Every soul will have to look into the eyes of the one who has eyes of fire. Eyes that can pierce through everything. Every soul will look into the eyes of the one who gave and sacrificed his perfect life for us. And for us, his sons and daughters, what a special moment for us. If we're saved, what a moment of gratitude. To know the only reason we're allowed into heaven is by the one who's judging us because he has died and given his life for us. What a special moment. But for those who have mocked him, for those who have doubted him, for those who kept pushing the decision to serve him later on and later on and later on in their lives, what a moment of horror. The very one they've mocked, the very one they've made fun of will be the one at the, in the judgment seat in heaven judging them. 
That's why it's so important for us in 1 John 1, 9. It tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's why it's so important. We need to confess our sins before him. Because he can see through our actions to our very motives and the thoughts of our heart. He will execute the laws of his father's government. And he will also execute the laws concerning the pardon of our sins. Again, think about that. What will that moment be like for you? Will it be a moment of gratitude and thanksgiving? Or will it be a moment of horror? Will it be a moment of depart from me? I don't know you. Tells us because he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Our praise to God will be because he's judging all the evil and all the wrong that has ever taken place on this planet. To all those who have corrupted the earth, to all those who have corrupted God's plan for mankind, to all those who have corrupted God's word, and to all those who have shed the blood of his servants, God will judge. And and this reveals to us just how much God loves and cares for us. How much God loves his children. How much God cares for his servants that whenever the world mistreats us, he takes it personally. Right, to any of the parents here, when someone mistreats your child, right, do you not take that personally, right, as if they are attacking you? We could think of Saul on his way to persecute more believers in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Saul hears a voice, and the voice tells him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes this personally. And he will judge every single person who has persecuted his people and who have corrupted this earth. This word corrupt is to change from good to bad morals. To change from good manners to bad manners. To change from good actions to bad actions. It's to change from the original or correct or the first version of something. And this is very dangerous to us, very dangerous to anyone who is in the act of corrupting this planet or of corrupting other people. Let's turn to Matthew 18, and we see two parts to this. A danger to those who are doing the corrupting, and a danger to us if we are allowing things in our life to corrupt us. Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18 verse 6, but whoever causes One of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Again, family, friend, if you are here and you are part of the corrupting process, If you are corrupting the holiness or the standard or the morals in another believer, be careful. Dangerous place to be. If you're corrupting little ones, if you're corrupting 
immature believers, new believers, children, woe to you. God's word is very clear. God desires for you to change, to turn from your sins, and to seek forgiveness. But then in verse 8, it changes to each and every one of us. It says now, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lamed or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Again, family, if we have things in our lives that are corrupting us, certain TV shows, certain friendships, certain books that we're reading, certain relationships, and they're corrupting our morals, they're corrupting what God has intended and made us to be, we are to cut them off. We're not to continue to spend time with them. We need to cut it off. So warning to us, are we corrupting other people's morals? Are we corrupting other people's high standards for serving God? Are we the ones bringing filth into their lives? Or are we a part of the standard encouraging and stirring others up to holiness? And then in each and every one of our lives, are we allowing things to corrupt us, to corrupt the inner man, to corrupt what we were originally created for, and that's to worship Jesus Christ and to be made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 and 4, we see that heaven will be praising God again and again and again for his judgment upon this earth. In chapter 17 and 18 in Revelation, we see that Babylon is destroyed in one hour. However, her smoke will be rising up forever and ever. Judgment will be taking place for the rest of eternity. In Revelation 18, 15, we see that the merchants, those who were a part of the religious system or the world's commerce, will be weeping and wailing at the destruction of Babylon. But we who are in heaven, what will we be doing? We'll be praising God. We'll be thanking Him for His judgment, and His judgment will be happening for the rest of eternity. And this is such a danger to any of us who love this world. First John chapter 2 verse 15 through 17, John tells us, "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away." And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Again, whose will, whose business are we after each and every day? Are we after our own will, our own business, our own desires? Or are we doing the will of God? Again, loving the world and the things in the world, it's a dangerous lifestyle. And it's going to be judged for the rest of eternity. It's also a great condemnation to us, his saints, when we begin to love this world. If you're feeling convicted right now, good, it's important. Because if we begin to love this world, remember, this world has done nothing for us. What good has this world brought you? 
What good has this world brought you? It is a part of Satan's team to only steal, kill, and destroy. Compare the love of this world, compare it to the love of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. All that they've done for us. All that they've done to demonstrate perfect, selfless love towards you and I. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 and 9 tells us, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Again, how dare we love this world when it's done nothing for us? Only destruction, pain, and torment. May we be weary. May we be careful if we're beginning to love this world. Romans 5.9 also reveals to us the only way to be saved from the wrath of God is through the death and blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's by accepting his death and resurrection on our behalf and then living like we believe it and acting like we believe it. It's not just saying it with our mouth, empty words. It's believing it with our, with our heart and confessing it with our mouth. And then actions will follow. Verse 5 and 9, 5 and 6, not 5 and 9, 5 and 6. There are three types of people in this world. Those that can count and those that can't. Verse 5 and 6. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In verse 5, we have this angel calling out to the multitude that we talked about in heaven. He calls out to him and he says, Praise our God. All you his servants and those who fear him, we see in heaven, both small and great. If we're small or great in heaven, doesn't matter, right? As long as we're there and not in the other alternative place, right? But all those who fear him and his servants. We don't have time to go super in-depth in this, but do we fear God? Do we respect God? When we make our decisions, whose opinion do we care about the most? Our friend, our family member, our coworker, the girl or guy that we like, or is our chief concern, God, what do you think about this decision? God's word tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. It brings a, a noose around your neck if you're living your life based on what will people think about this decision. But we know that the fear of God, it leads to wisdom, it leads to understanding, and it leads to a long and good life. May we fear God more than we fear men. He then calls out to all his servants. Again, who are we serving on a daily basis? Are we serving ourselves, our own interests? Or are we serving God and the interests of God? That word servant is the word in the Greek doulos. It's literally a bond servant or a slave. It's one who gives up his will or her will completely for the will of someone else. So whose cause are we extending or advancing? Are we extending and advancing our own cause, our own desires, our own will? Or is our life's mission about extending and advancing the cause of Jesus Christ? 
Again, it's very important for us to realize the growing process within our salvation. It starts off with salvation. We're saved. Then that leads to sanctification. God, he loves us. He cares for us. He doesn't just save us and leave us where we're at. But he continues to sanctify us, make us more and more in his image, putting off more and more the works of this world and sin and putting more and more on the works of Jesus Christ and looking like him. And then lastly, the last letter word there is serving. Are we serving God? Why do you think God saved you? To make your life better, right? So you could be the best version of yourself? Not at all. You look at the disciples, look at the gospels, look at the epistles. All of these disciples, their whole entire life's mission became to extend and advance the kingdom of God. They didn't get saved so that God would bless their fishing business, right? Is that why they got saved? No, they gave up those businesses to serve God. They didn't get saved and they started creating more falafel stands or more businesses, right? And God bless this mess and grow my family more and more. Not at all. They got saved, they got sanctified, and then their life's mission was about serving God the Father. The same is true with us. It's not that we need to, each of us, give up our job. If God's calling you to that, to full-time ministry, that's a different thing. But within our job, we can be focused on, God, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I bless you with what you've given me? Lord, today at work, how can I advance your kingdom? How can I extend your kingdom today? Even as you came in to church this morning, it's not where do I want to sit? Where am I comfortable? Where's the people that I like to sit around? It's, Lord, where do you want me to sit? Lord, who do you want me to talk to? God, what kind of conversations can I have with someone else to extend and further your kingdom? Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. John 14, verse 15, Jesus tells us, If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? How simple is that? If you love me, keep my commandments. Not your commandments, not your desires, not your will. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide, you will stay in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, friend, family, are you a servant of God this morning? Or are you just a servant of self? The angel calls out to the people, right? He says, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And then what's the response of the multitude? What's the response there? Open book test, right? It says that there's this mighty roar, that there's a voice of a great multitude singing like many waters and like mighty thunderings. Oftentimes on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night, we're here worshiping, and my favorite moment is when the people in the blue chairs are singing louder than the people up here or than even the speakers themselves. Because that's the response of heaven. That should be our response in worshiping God. Too often we come to church like zombies. 
In worship, we're zombies. There's some of us, we never even come to worship. We think that's the previews to the church service, so we skip the previews. We hope it's a bright scene when we come into the movie theater, and we're good, right? Charles Spurgeon, he says, We ought not to worship God in a half-hearted sort of way, as if it were now our duty to bless God, but we felt it to be a weary business. And we would get through it as quickly as we could and have done with it, and the sooner the better. No, no. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship is easy, but it's worthless. Come, awaken yourself, my brother. Awaken thyself, O my own soul. What was your worship like this morning? Were you just that zombie saying, ah, I wish the cafe was open later so I could get more coffee this morning, right? Were you excited about God? Were you excited to worship Him and praise Him? Are you so analytical? Are you thinking about so many things that you can't focus on God and all that He's done for you? Mechanical worship, being in a rut, it's easy, but it is worthless. May we wake ourselves up to worship the Lord our God. Because if not, you may get sick of heaven sooner rather than later. Because heaven is filled with worshiping the Lord our God. I don't know how many of you have ever corrected someone, right? Someone says, oh, you go to church on Sunday? You're a very religious person, I guess, right? Have any of you ever corrected that person and say, no, no, I'm not religious. I just have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Anybody ever correct someone like that, right? Again, our whole life is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not trying to work. That's what religion is. Trying to work our way into a right standing with God. Jesus, he did the work. And now we are in a right standing with him if we by faith accept Jesus Christ as our Lord. These uh, next few weeks, it's one of my favorite times of year. It's known as football season, right? Football season starts up now. And each Sunday, you have tens of thousands of people attending a stadium. Sometimes even if the team's not there, right? We would call them a religious people, right? Some say, hey, you're religious to the Dolphins, right? And you're there every Sunday. But they're not even religious because they're not working their way up to gain something from the Dolphins, They literally have a love affair with football. That's what's happening. And when you walk into that stadium, is it just this mechanical worship? Even if the team is losing, even if the team is getting whooped, right? You walk in there and it is loud. The people are roaring. Think of the Green Bay Packers, right? They're up there in Wisconsin. It could be negative 10 degrees with rain and snow and sleet. Is the stadium empty? No, it is packed because of the love these people have with football. What does our love for God look like? What does our love for God look like? Is it just this dead mechanical worship? Are we just uh, humming and hawing to come to church? Again, think of football. They tailgate. They, They pay hundreds of dollars and then they get there three hours early, right? They bring their food. They go through all this work. They're outside giving food, serving to one another. Imagine if we get here three hours early, right? Here's some cafecito. Here's some pastelitos. Let's get ready for the worship service, right? What does our heart for God look like? 
There are men and women going to sporting events that do nothing for eternity. Football hasn't saved them. Football hasn't given them their spouse, their life, their freedom from pornography or addiction or alcohol. And they're willing to be out there every single moment that they can. What does our worship look like? To the one who has saved us, to the one that has given us everything, our very life, our very breath. What does our worship to him look like? Right? Some of our excuses, ah, it's raining outside, I don't want to drive to the indoor air conditioning church, right? Negative 13 degrees, rain, sleet, snow, we got to get out there, right? No shirts on, green, letters on their bellies, right? And they're out there. Again, what does our love for God look like? What does our worship look like? Jesus tells us that we should worship in spirit and in truth. It's not just about our actions, not just about dancing or singing as loud as we can. We worship Him both in spirit and in truth. Verse 7 and 8, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints next week we'll see how earth is preparing for war during this time period but heaven is preparing for a celebration and a feast and a party oftentimes throughout the gospels the pharisees would call jesus a wine bibber that he was always at the parties he was always at the festivals he was always at the feast again it's a it's a wake-up call to us because jesus loved to be around people how do we act as believers, right? Are we always trying to go hide in our own castle? I'm here in my castle and nobody bothers me. That's not what Jesus' life was like at all. He was always around other people, loving on them, praying for them, sharing the word of God with them. I believe that's why to church elders and deacons, they have to be hospitable. They have to be lovers of people, lovers of strangers. And Christ, he was always a part of this. And one day in heaven, we'll be at the best party and feast ever. Charles Spurgeon, he says, heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowings. We do not know yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable of. Again, the best times in this life getting married or having a kid, graduation, that new job, that new toy, whatever it may be, it will look like nothing compared to heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is often referred to as God's wife, but it's usually in a negative connotation. It, they're usually referred to God's wife because they're mostly unfaithful to God. In the New Testament, the church is often presented as the bride or the fiancé of Jesus Christ. I know that's weird for a lot of the guys that you're going to be the bride of Christ, but don't worry, you're going to look beautiful that day. Don't worry <laughs> whatsoever, right? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll look there and then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 5. How God's word tells us that we are the bride of Christ and we are to be ready for this marriage supper of the Lamb. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul tells the church of Corinth, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. 
For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Again, if there's true love, there's going to be a certain amount of jealousy there. Jealousy isn't evil in and of itself. True love needs to have some type of jealousy there. That you're faithful to one another. Paul's desire for the church of Corinth is that they would be ready as that pure body to Christ the day of the marriage feast of the Lamb. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, here we have really one of the cornerstone scriptures when it comes to marriage. And really what it reveals to us is that marriage is just a picture for everyone here on earth to see the love of Jesus Christ for the body of Christ. There in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 32, it tells us, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does his church. We jump down to verse 32. It says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This wedding feast or marriage supper, we see it in, in, there in heaven, but a wedding feast and a marriage supper was the best banquet. It was the biggest party that anyone ever knew of within ancient Jewish culture. Within a marriage, there were two big events, very similar to us today. There was the engagement or the, be, the betrothal, right? Being betrothed to one another and the wedding day. You had Joseph and Mary and they were betrothed to one another. They were engaged, but they were not yet married. That's why Mary was so concerned when she was pregnant with Jesus Christ. That's why the angel had to appear to Joseph when he realized his wife was pregnant with God's son. And the angel said, yes, this is for real. She's not just lying to you. But during this engagement, while you were betrothed to one another, you still had all the responsibilities of marriage. Not only did you have the responsibilities of marriage, but you were still obligated to stay faithful to your partner during that engagement period. You would be put to death if you were caught in sexual misconduct during this engagement period. Once you were engaged, once you were betrothed to one another, the groom would go home to his parents and begin to build an addition on his parents' house. If you ladies really don't like your in-laws, praise God that you're not in biblical times, right? The groom would literally build a house onto his parents' house. And he would prepare a place for his bride and his future family. Then on one special day, the groom would head to the bride's house leading a great procession. And then he would come for his bride and take her. You could think of the parable of the ten virgins. He would take his bride and whoever else she wanted. And he would take her to his home for this marriage wedding feast. And they would have this celebration. And then I know many of the young adults, they freaked out by the, the budget for a wedding. This would be a week-long marriage feast. 
a week long. You're feeding people for seven days, right? Feeding them. They're at your house. You're taking care of them. Welcome to marriage life, right? Today, our relationship with Jesus Christ is very similar. Right now, we're in that engagement period with Christ. Right now, we're in that betrothal period with Jesus Christ, and we're still charged with the responsibilities and the faithfulness to stay pure to our groom. We're still charged with those same two tasks. I think that's why in John 14, verse 1 through 6, Jesus, he tells his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. This is one of the times I love Thomas because he says, Lord, I don't know. We don't know, right? What are you talking about, God? Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? So then Jesus says to them this very famous verse, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, there'll be this great praise because we'll finally come to that day of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. All the people we miss, we'll get to see them once again if they were saved and had that relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll also get to meet new people, right? Get to meet Moses, Abraham, Charles Spurgeon, whoever your favorite men and women of the faith are. We're going to meet them. But we're going to be there with Jesus Christ. And the verse 7 says, His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So if we are the bride of Christ, a great question to ask is, how can I make myself ready? How can I make sure that I am ready? And again, today in today's culture, it takes the bride like 12 hours to get ready for the wedding, right? It takes a year of planning if you live here in Miami to have that, that wedding day. How can we be ready for this wedding day with Jesus? God's word puts it simple. Stay in Jesus Christ and he'll do the rest. Stay pure and in Jesus Christ and he'll do the rest. God's word says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, it goes back to Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ's desire is that he would sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he would present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. How do we get ourselves ready? Just work. On staying with Jesus Christ. That's all we got to do. It's similar to Hebrews that we need to labor to enter into that rest. Just work to be in God's word. Work to spend time alone with the Lord. Work to be in and abiding in Jesus Christ and allow him to do the rest. He says that he's going to cleanse us and sanctify us with the washing of water by the word. Make it a habit to go through God's word Cut out the distractions, cut out the desire for me, 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 and just say, God, what do you want to show me this morning? That he would present her without having spot or wrinkle, right? Most of us, we get our spots the moment we're born. 
We're born with different freckles. We're born with different birthmarks. And we get that when we're born. The wrinkles, however, right? When do the wrinkles come? As life gets more and more difficult. As life gets more and more difficult, that's when we get those wrinkles. However, if we stay abiding in Jesus Christ, he will remove every spot. He'll remove whatever we were born into this world with, whatever our sin nature is, whatever sins we're prone to, Christ will wipe that all away. Our wrinkles, the bad habits we've developed along the way, the times we've fallen and sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, He'll wipe all of that away, that we would be holy and without blemish. In John 15, verse 1 through 3, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it would bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Again, we're clean if we're in Jesus Christ. Just labor to be in that rest. Just make sure you're abiding, you're with Jesus. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from this world. Again, may we be working on cutting off the things that corrupt us, the friendships, the relationships that corrupt us. Let's cut those things off that we would keep ourselves unspotted from this world. As God's word says, when it comes to evil, we should be rookies. We should be like babies when it comes to evil things. But when it comes to good things, when it comes to holy things, when it comes to spiritual things, we should be masters. We should be growing more and more in the things of God. And don't we have that totally backwards? How often we're trying to keep up with the evil of this world. What's the latest drug? What's the latest evil? What's the latest thing going on? And we're trying to be well-versed in the evil going on today. I have to stay connected. I have to be in social media. I got to watch this. I got to watch this so I know how I could reach people. It's the very opposite. Be pure. Be a baby when it comes to the evil of this world. And be in the word of God. Verse 9 then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. One last thing I forgot to mention on how can we get ready. It tells us that they are arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We don't have time to go through all the Gospels, but Jesus, he gives some allegories where there's someone that tries to come to a wedding feast in bad apparel we don't get to heaven in our own righteousness we don't get to heaven in our own works we get to heaven by putting off our works and putting on the work of Jesus Christ our righteousness God's word tells us is but filthy rags our very best our very best effort our very best righteousness is like toilet paper and menstrual rags that's literally what God's word is saying what we need to put on is the work of Jesus Christ. And when we put on Jesus, it's clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This adds the beautiful balance of Scripture. We don't just get to heaven just riding and floating on the lazy river of holiness. So we don't just magically float into heaven. We could think of Ephesians 
chapter 2, verse 10. It tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're God's poem. You're his work of art. But you and I were created to follow in his path and to fulfill these good works that he's laid in front of us. And now these righteous acts, it just adds to the beauty that we have during this great wedding day. Some Bible scholars think that before the wedding feast, we have all of our works judged. And we know when all of our works judged, the fire of Christ, right, it's going to either be burnt to a crisp or there'll be gold and jewels there laying out there. Finally, verse 9 and 10, we see right Blessed are those who are the called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We should be excited for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We should see it as a good thing, as an exciting thing. Jesus was excited and looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Matthew 26, verse 28 and 29, during the Last Supper, he tells his disciples, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's my same stance on alcohol. When will I drink wine? When Jesus gives it to me there in his Father's kingdom. But Jesus, he was looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We should be excited for it as well. Here in verse 10, we really don't know what happened with John. If John had a lapse, if he like, we don't blew a gasket, we don't know what happened. But he bows down to begin worshiping this angel. And we see here the true ministry of Jesus Christ. If you're ever at a church and you make a mistake and you begin to worship man and they just say, yeah, yeah, worship me more and more, you're at the wrong place. You should always be at a place that takes your attention and always places it back upon God, back upon Jesus Christ. Worship God. We also see here that this angel says, hey, I'm just your fellow servant. You're a servant. And I'm a servant too. Again, amazing what God has in store for us in heaven. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All prophecy is to lead us towards Jesus Christ. All prophecy should lead us to be focused on Jesus Christ. Not to be focused on something else or on someone else. Not to be focused, oh, somebody here has $5,000 check to put in the back tithe box, right? Zero focus on Jesus Christ there. I have this prophecy for you. Zero focus on Jesus Christ. All true prophecy leads our focus back to Jesus Christ. That's why the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't become obsessed with the Antichrist or obsessed with the temple being rebuilt or obsessed with what's Babylon, what's this, what's that. No. Our focus is to be on Jesus Christ. One commentator says, This means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Next time we're together, we'll look at the war that Jesus will begin to wage upon this planet. But again, family, just which feast do you want to be a part of? You're there, you're preparing for that fight. Where do you want to go? You want to go to the hospital and the ambulance? Or do you want to go and have dinner with this person? Just encourage you to pray. Where's your reservation at for the rest of eternity? Are you in that relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know that you're abiding with him? That you'll be able to wear those precious robes that he's given us? Are you, are you slipping away? Are you becoming more and more unfaithful? You're loving more and more this world. You're getting caught up in bad relationships, bad friendships. The idols of a certain show, certain social media, certain friendships. You're not willing to give up because you love that more than your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a great day to get right with him. So if the worship team can come up and pastors can come up and we'll pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you're writing this, God, because you love us and because you're warning us, Lord. You're warning us what the end of, or the beginning of eternity is really going to look like, Lord. And we know that your heart, your will, is that we would be with you, Lord. We'd be at this wedding feast with you, Lord. We'd be in this right relationship with you. We would be dressed, Lord, in holiness, not our own works, but in Jesus, your work on the cross for us, your perfect life, your perfect sacrifice, God. Lord, I pray that each of us would be ready to see you face to face, that we wouldn't have to be filled with regret or shame. But Lord, right now we can come and confess our sins before you, knowing that you will be just and faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. If any of us are worried, if any of us are questioning where we're going to spend the rest of eternity, Lord, I pray that we'd come up and pray with one of the pastors. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.